welcome our colleagues who have joined us tonight for the history of Black lawyers in California. Thank you, Charles Houston Bar Association President uh, Terrence Evans for putting this together and all of our esteemed speakers and colleagues. Um, Cable, I'm president of the California Association of Black Lawyers, uh, and it's been a busy and successful year. Uh, we have at least 10 candidates that we have recommended to Governor Newsom through our Judicial's evalu Judicial Evaluations Committee. And we actually have a, a very close relationship now with Judicial Appointment Secretary Cespedes, who actually called us to let us know about the appointment with for Justice Guerrero to the Supreme Court last Thursday. Um, we've significantly increased our support to the California Legislative Black Caucus through Assemblyman Gibson and Senator Bradford, and we helped pass legislation addressing police, police positional asphyxiation, not easy to say, police no chokehold, and police decertification uh, legislation. Um, through our Ryan Harrison, one of our members, um, we were asked to testify before four subcommittees. And along with ALSA, Stanford University, we co-sponsored the successful hepatitis screening and linkage to care bill, which became law recently. Now we're, we're sponsoring the ban on host guns, or ghost guns, I'm sorry, ghost guns. And that legislation should be coming through shortly and we will, we will be a, a sponsor or a co-sponsor. Um, we're working with the California Bar Association and members uh, of the cable, bar, the cable board are uh, members of several ad hoc committees such as the Attorney Discipline Committee, the Council on Access to Fairness, Access and Fairness, and the Blue Ribbon Commission on the Future of the Bar Exam. Um, we've scheduled a legislative day in Sacramento for April 24th and 25th, and we are hosting our first cable in-person conference in the last three years, which will be June 23rd through the 26th. Uh, we have a very successful board. We meet monthly instead of quarterly now. And uh, would you like to be involved in cable activities? Please uh, send us a message at cableassociation at gmail.com. And thank you for your support of cable. Uh, I'll now introduce Tamara Benefield Falk, who is National Bar Association Region 9 representative. Thank you. Thank you, Cable. Welcome, family, friends, and colleagues. My name is Tamara Benefield Falk. I am a family law trial advocate, and I have the pleasure of serving as the Region 9 Director of the National Bar Association, along with our board, the Honorable Tara Newman, Amy DePew, Chloe Woods, Yuri Walker, Terry Wiley, and our very own Terrence Evans, Deputy Region 9 Director. Thank you so much, Terrence, for your outstanding contributions to Black history in the making. And you are the reason why we can all enjoy this program today. And we will be inviting so many more of you to join a Southern California Leadership Roundtable next month. Well, let me take a point of personal privilege to invite you to join the National Bar Association. It is the oldest and largest predominantly African-American network of attorneys and judges. The NBA represents the interests of 66,000 lawyers, judges, law professors, and students. Please visit nationalbar.org for more information on how you can join the movement. Our president is the distinguished and honorable Carlos Moore, and he is running a nationwide campaign calling for us to stand up 
for justice, for freedom, and for equality. And he is advocating for us all over the place, from CNN to the White House. And this weekend, he will be hosting a town hall. So please join and don't miss out. This summer, the NBA will be hosting its annual convention in person in Memphis, Tennessee, where you can see all of our kings and queens, like Black America's Attorney General, Benjamin Crump, and heavy hitters like Chris Stewart and Lee Merritt, and incoming President Lanita Baker, attorney for the family of Breonna Taylor. Yes, say her name, Breonna Taylor. They will be there to educate, uplift, and motivate you to be the best attorney, advocate, and social engineer that you can be. And why is this so important? Well, I like to think of it this way. All of the struggles and progress we have made as a people has amounted to you right now. And we are the living epistles of a wondrous and glorious people. Happy Black History Month from the National Bar Association. Thank you so much, Tamara, and, and thank you so much, everybody, for joining us and being part of this Black History Month program. We're so excited to have such a distinguished panel, all of them past presidents of various Black Bar Associations, all of them past presidents of the Charles Houston Bar Association, three co-founders of CABLE, which is the umbrella organization for all Black Bar Associations and judicial organizations in California, and we have at least two past presidents of the National Bar Association, which of course is the largest Black Bar Association in the world and the umbrella bar, uh, association for all Black Bar Associations. I wanna take a moment, if I may, to thank our generous sponsors that have helped to make this program possible. I wanna thank my firm, Dwayne Morris LLP, for hosting this event on its platform. Uh, we appreciate all the uh, great work that you do on diversity and inclusion. We, of course, want to thank Charles Houston Bar Association for uh, organizing and supporting this uh, program. We want to thank Region 9 of the National Bar Association, the Alameda County Bar Association, the Contra Costa Bar Association, Bay Area Lawyers of Individual Freedom, the Bar Association of San Francisco, California Lawyers Association, CLA Racial Justice Committee, the Women's Lawyers Association of Los Angeles, Black Women Lawyers of Los Angeles, Black Women Lawyers of Northern California, the Minority Bar Coalition, uh, the John Langston uh, Bar Association, the Richard T. Fields Bar Association, the Wiley Manual Bar Association, uh, the American Bar Association, um, the Bernard Jefferson Bar Association, the Hugh Goodwin Bar Association, uh, Santa Clara Black Lawyers Association and the California Association of Black Lawyers. I think this might be uh, among the largest number of sponsors that we've had uh, for an event. So thank you so much. We appreciate it. My name is Terrence Evans. I'm a partner at Dwayne Morris, where I'm also the co-chair of our banking and financial services practice and the co-leader of our diversity and inclusion program in San Francisco. I have the honor of wearing a few hats outside of the firm. I am the president of Charles Houston Bar Association, also deputy director of Region 9 of the National Bar Association, and I'm also on the board of the California Lawyers Association. Joining me as my uh, co-moderator here is the amazing Amira Cobb. Um, 
Hampton, who helped to organize this program and put it together. So Amira, this wouldn't have happened without you. Amira is a Solano County uh, public defender. In addition to that, she is the uh, legal services chair for the Charles Houston Bar Association and has worked extraordinarily hard uh, in the legal community to promote diversity, inclusion, and equity. Uh, before we get into the introductions of the panel, I wanna share my screen for just a minute. And when I do these programs, I just like to remind people how fortunate we are to be having this conversation. So over the past two years, I've had the honor of speaking at about 80 diversity and inclusion programs. And uh, beginning in May of last year, I started to track states that were enacting uh, bans on what some folks have termed critical race theory. So in May 13, 2021, 14 states had enacted laws that restrict discussions that we will be having today about Black history and the contributions of people of color. Um, in June of 2021, so this was right around Juneteenth when I started giving presentations, we were up to 21 states banned the very discussion that we're gonna be having this evening. If you are a public school teacher in these states, you can be fired, you can have your pay cut. Uh, if you're working at a public university in these states, uh, you can have a tenure denied. In October of 2021, this is when we did our ninth annual citywide diversity and inclusion program with the Bar Association of San Francisco, we were up to 28 states, 28 states where the conversation that we'll be having today is banned, banned by law in public schools. And if we look at today, uh, right now there is uh, legislation pending in 36 states, 36 states uh, that would ban uh, the very discussion that we're having today about the important contributions of Black lawyers and Black Bar Association. So very sobering, and it also highlights the importance of the discussion that we're having. Um, I'm going to pass the mic to my good friend and co-moderator, Myra, who will uh, begin introductions of our panel. Thank you, Mr. Evans. Known for protecting the constitutional rights of the Bay Area's poorest residents, Mr. Kwazan Malouf is a trailblazer in the criminal defense community and beyond. Mr. Malouf is a longstanding member of the San Francisco Public Defender Office, having held many leadership positions within that office for the last 20 years. He has had an active role in many legal organizations, including past president of the Charles Houston Bar Association, board member of the National Bar Association, and past president of the California Association of Black Lawyers. Mr. Malouf has received many awards, including Minority Bar Coalition Unity Award for his outstanding service to the community, Northern California Top Attorney, Attorney Award, and in 2014, Mr. Malouf received the Gideon Award from the Santa Clara County Black Lawyers Association, an honor received for his outstanding public service in the defense, in the area of criminal defense. Mr. Malouf, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It is almost impossible to adequately articulate everything Ms. Johnson has accomplished thus far, as her accolades could fill an entire book. She now serves as senior advisor to Attorney General Rob Bonta, where she oversees the Division of Legal Affairs, Law Enforcement, Operations, 
Policy, and Technology. Prior to this position, she, she served as a Chief Assistant District Attorney in Contra Costa County. She has also served as an Associate Attorney to the former Attorney General, now Vice President, Ms. Kamala Harris. Ms. Johnson is a former president of Charles Houston Bar Association and is clearly a powerhouse in her own right. I'm personally honored to have her here today. Thank you, Ms. Johnson. Mr. George Holland is a living legend. Mr. Holland has a wide breadth of experience across the legal system. A former probation officer and prior public defender, Mr. Holland has practiced in both areas of civil and criminal litigation. An attorney for 49 years and counting, he's the current president of the Oakland branch of the NAACP. Mr. Holland was a founding member and past president of CABLE and was also the past president of the Charles Houston Bar Association and the Wiley Manning Law Foundation. Please help me welcome living legend, George Holland, Sr. Thank you, Amara. Thank you. A man who needs no introduction, but he will get one tonight, is Mr. Robert L. Harris. Mr. Harris' civil rights activism and participation in the political process and the legal community goes back roughly five decades. He has dedicated himself to change the face of the legal community. Mr. Harris spent much of his legal career at PG&E retiring as vice president. During his time with the company, he was the first and only lawyer in PG&E's history to argue and win cases in United States Supreme Court. As a founding member of CABLE, Mr. Harris called the first session of this historic organization to order on April 23, 1977. Mr. Harris continued his pattern of leadership by coming president of CABLE and Charles Houston Bar Association. Mr. Harris received the highest honor from CABLE, the Lauren Miller Award, and its Lifetime Achievement Award. In 2013, he was inducted into the National Bar Association Hall of Fame and shortly after, in 2016, he was inducted into Cable Hall of Fame. Mr. Harris, welcome. Thank you very uh, much. And Mr. Evans, I will turn it over to you to introduce the remaining panel. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I failed to mention earlier that for those of you who would like to receive elimination of bias MCLE credit, during this program, there will be a series of poll questions that are making sure that you're paying attention uh, please respond to each of those poll questions that you see on your screen, um, and you will be able to receive uh, elimination of bias MCLE credit. So I have the great honor of introducing several of our past presidents, and, and I will begin with the great John Burris, who of course is one of the foremost civil rights lawyers uh, in American history. He has represented many high profile clients, uh, including Rodney King, where he won a $3.8 million suit against the LAPD. He is a past president of the Charles Houston Bar Association. Uh, he's a co-founder and past president of the California Association of Black Lawyers, a past president of the National Bar Association. He's won tens of millions of dollars uh, in representing people in civil rights matters. And he was featured uh, in a movie about Oscar Grant, whose family he also represented. Uh, John, thanks so much here and being important. We have with us past president, Kimberly Evans. She is a former partner in the San Francisco office 
of Lewis Brisboy. Uh, she recently joined AAA of Northern California. She is a past president of the Charles Houston Bar Association. She has served as a member of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, and she has sat on the Board of Governors for the University of San Francisco Law School. Uh, she was also Region 9 Director for the National Bar Association, and she also was a member of the California Association of Black Warriors. Uh, Kimberly, thank you so much for being with us today. I next have the honor of introducing past president Nidra Schaller. Uh, Nidra is a past president of the Charles Houston Bar Association. Uh, she has served as deputy county counsel in the office of county counsel. She has been extremely involved in civil rights and diversity and inclusion work uh, with the Alameda County Bar Association, the California Association of Black Lawyers, and also the National uh, Bar Association. Nidra, we're so happy to have you uh, here with us tonight. I next have the honor of uh, welcoming uh, past president, Rosinia Cummings. Uh, Rosinia is a native of Berkeley. She is a past president of the Charles Houston Bar Association, a past president of the California Association of Black Lawyers. She served as vice president of the National Bar Association and co-chair of the NBA's election task force. She has been involved in civil rights work and diversity and inclusion work uh, for much of her career. She's also a proud member of the Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Rosinia, we're so extremely happy to have you here with us this evening. Um, thanks again to our amazing panel. Uh, before we get into a discussion uh, with the panel regarding some uh, very important issues past and present, we're gonna have a conversation about uh, black history. Last year when we did this panel uh, or did this program, uh, we had the amazing judge Charles Smiley who provided a synopsis of some important uh, black history events. And we are gonna cover uh, just some of those events um, so that we can then jump into our discussion and we can um, have some context for what gave rise to the creation of black bar associations. I'm gonna share my screen again, and I'm gonna show you all a little bit of information about what black lawyers were dealing with at the time that the National Bar Association was created and many of the California bars. So many folks are not aware of this, but the reason why we have black bar associations, Asian bar associations, Latinx Hispanic bar associations, Native American Bar Associations and LGBTQ Bar Associations is because the American Bar Association and many local bar associations refused to admit non-whites. And so it was necessary for people of color and people of diverse backgrounds to amongst themselves organize so that they would have a place uh, to practice and to discuss uh, matters to promote their uh, opportunities in the profession. And I wanna also create some context about what was going on in California around the time that these bar associations were created. Many people, when they think about segregation, when they think about Jim Crow laws, they think that this is something that only happened in the South. But actually here in the great state of California, 
for a hundred year period and even after that until we had the passage of the Civil Rights Act, we had laws in California that barred non-whites from having access to most hospitals. So if you were a black person and you were in an emergency situation and needed medical treatment, you could not just go to any hospital. You could only go to a hospital that treated non-whites. Uh, if you were not white in the state of California, and this was true in much of the rest of the country, you were barred from testifying in any case where a white person was a party. And it didn't matter if it was a criminal case, it didn't matter if it was a civil case, you could not speak out against anyone who happened to be white. So you can imagine yourself if you're in some kind of uh, vehicle accident, if you were in some kind of uh, situation where you witnessed a crime, you would not be able to testify. Non-whites in California were barred from serving on juries. Non-whites in California were barred from voting. Non-whites in California were barred from holding elective office. Non-whites in California, and again, this was true in much of the world, much of other country, uh, were barred from serving as judges. We're gonna get into uh, some of the history regarding the first male and female judges in California. Non-white attorneys were barred from questioning white witnesses. So you look at this panel, you look at all of these beautiful black faces. If we had been trying to practice law during this particular time in California history, we would not be able to question white witnesses. You can imagine how difficult it would be to litigate if you were barred from questioning people who happened to be white. Non-whites were barred from public schools in California were barred from buying and renting property. So this is where we have uh, redlining uh, and limitations on where people of color could live. Folks wonder why do we have black neighborhoods and Latinx neighborhoods and uh, Asian neighborhoods and other types of neighborhoods? Well, it wasn't because people simply just wanted to be together. Uh, they were prohibited from living in certain areas. The discrimination even continued into death where non-whites were barred from being buried in certain cemeteries. It extended to restaurants. It extended to hotels and theaters and pools and beaches. So basically every area of public life, non-whites were barred from participating. Again, non-whites were denied admission to bar associations. So you will hear from some of these great uh, leaders that are here to speak. Uh, we're barred from the state bar associations. We're barred from the city bar associations, the county bar associations, the American bar associations. Everywhere you turn, non-whites were denied an opportunity to be part of the legal community. So they had to build their own communities. Denied public transportation, denied equal pay for equal work. So you can have the same job, you can work just as hard, but there were no laws that required black people to be paid the same as white people. And of course, we are familiar with uh, the laws that prohib uh, prohibit, prohibited racial uh, mixing. I wanna talk about also uh, some of the other uh, issues that uh, impacted the black community uh, during this particular time that these bar associations were created. So many folks are not familiar with the Homestead Act. The Homestead Act was one of the greatest generators of wealth in the United States. Hundreds of millions of acres of land were given out. 
the program was enacted just as slavery was ending and African-Americans were prohibited from participating in the program. About 90% of all of the land that was given out by the American government was given to white people, many of them immigrants from Europe who immigrated to the United States specifically to take advantage of the program. So if we just think for a minute, we can imagine how different life would have been for former slaves if they had been allowed to get their 160 acres of public land as were many white folks during that particular time. Another important piece of history that folks were dealing with around the time that these bar associations were created was following World War II. You had 1.2 million black servicemen and black service women who had put their lives on the line to protect democracy, to protect our great country. And so the uh, United States Congress, they passed the GI Bill in order to help veterans get resettled back into American life. But black veterans were specifically denied the opportunity to participate in this program. The GI Bill provided money for college, money to buy a home, money to start a business, money to help your kids go to school. All of this denied to the 1.2 million black servicemen and women. So you imagine if we could go back in time and if we could give this benefit to those 1.2 million veterans, how different life might have been for many members of the black community. We can also look at social security, which many people refer to as a safety net. Well, when social security was passed, it was administered at the local level and it was done in such a way that 70% of black Americans were denied social security benefits. These are benefits that they paid for with their tax dollars, they were denied the opportunity to take advantage of it. We already talked about redlining. Another important uh, thing to be aware of is that in addition to all of the Jim Crow laws that existed at the time that these bar associations were created, uh, there were also more than 30 massacres. Some of them have been featured in movies, but there were 30 massacres that completely decimated 30 plus African-American neighborhoods. These were neighborhoods where despite all of the discrimination, black people had managed to start their own law firms, their own hospitals, their own hotels. They, they had homes, they had lives, they had churches. And in more than 30 instances in the great United States of America, all of these neighborhoods were completely burned down to the ground. And to add insult to injury, the uh, individuals, who burned down these neighborhoods, took the property for themselves and built their own towns. So not only did they not get to rebuild on the land that they owned, it was taken away from them. And as I already said, it wasn't like they could just go to, uh, it wasn't like they could just go to court and sue. Um, they were specifically denied the opportunity uh, to have their voices heard in our court system. I'm going to uh, take us through a little bit of the history. I'll stop sharing my screen for just a second. I'm gonna take us through a little bit of the history of the Black Bar Associations, and then we're going to get into our panel discussion. So as I mentioned, there were many people of color who wanted to get together and be part of something where they could uh, have conversations and 
uh, learn from each other in ways that they could improve their careers, but that opportunity was denied to them by the majority white bar associations. And so we had a number of leaders that got together and, and started their own organizations. And I just wanna feature some of these leaders and some of these bar associations. I'm gonna share my screen again, and then we'll get into our discussion. So right here, we have uh, Charles Houston, uh, the namesake of the Charles Houston Bar Association. He is referred to as the father of the civil rights movement, uh, the father of desegregation. He helped to create the blueprint that made it possible for other civil rights leaders like Thurgood Marshall and others to follow him. Uh, he created the blueprint for the Brown versus Board of Education decision and many other desegregation uh, cases. But these are some pictures of uh, Charles Houston. Here are some pictures of Charles Houston as a child with his parents. Um, he served as a general counsel for the NAACP. He went on to uh, be a dean at uh, Howard uh, Law School. Uh, here on the right, you have a picture of uh, Charles Houston with his Harvard class. Uh, this was in 1919. He was the first black editor of the Harvard Law Review. On the left, you have a picture of Charles Houston uh, as an army officer during World War I. And there was a quote uh, of his as he was leaving the service. And the quote is, the hate and scorn showered on us Negro officers by our fellow Americans convinced me that there was no sense in my dying for war a world ruled by them. I made up my mind that if I got through this war, I would study law and use my time fighting for men who could not strike back. Here's another picture showing uh, Charles Houston on the right uh, with uh, Thurgood Marshall uh, on the far left standing up. Uh, Thurgood Marshall, of course, went on to become the first justice, uh, black justice on the United States Supreme Court. We have a, a bit of history and I'm gonna encourage everybody to look at the written materials. I prepared written materials with a lot of deep historical information for this presentation. We won't have time to go through all the details. Uh, I wrote about 70 pages. It took me several months to put this information together, but it has helpful information that will supplement what we uh, discussed during this program. Uh, but Charles Houston Bar Association has roots that go back to 1910 and it became an official association in 1955. Uh, there's a lot more detail in here that you can get uh, from the show just the leaders uh, who were involved. We have three of the co-founders of Cable. As I mentioned, it is the umbrella organization for all black bar associations and judicial organizations in California. Uh, here we have um, Bob Harris, uh, John Burris, George Holland, three of the co-founders of Cable, and they'll talk to you uh, about their experience and why they thought that was necessary. These are pictures of John M. Langston. The Langston Bar Association is the uh, uh, Black Bar Association affiliate, affiliate in Los Angeles. The namesake is John M. Langston. Uh, he was, I believe, the first Black congressman. And uh, these are pictures of him uh, during the time that he was in Congress. We have a lot of information about his background and his history and his important contributions. Uh, 
these here, uh, this is a picture of Wiley Manuel. Uh, justice Manuel was the first black justice on the California Supreme Court. He is the namesake of the Wiley Manuel Bar Association of Sacramento County. Um, interesting detail, as I was putting this together, I went to the various websites of the Black Affiliate Bar Associations. They failed to mention that he's also a past president of the Charles Houston Bar Association. And when he was appointed, he was appointed at the same time as Rose Byrd. Um, and there's a lot of interesting historical information um, about his service and his important contributions uh, to the experience of black lawyers in California. We also have, and this is included in the written materials, uh, the Black Women Lawyers Association of Northern California. These are pictures of two of the co-founders, uh, the Honorable Patricia Ann Kelly, the Honorable Judith Ford, uh, and this was an organization of African-American women lawyers and judges who came together focusing specifically on how to empower and strengthen Black women in the legal profession. We also have the equivalent down in Los Angeles, California, the Black Women Lawyers Association of Los Angeles, uh, fighting to uh, increase the representation and opportunities for Black women in LA. One interesting personal fact, the Black Women Lawyers Association of LA, they give out an annual scholarship uh, to help young people who need assistance in taking the bar exam and preparing. Well, uh, I, I won't say how many years ago, it was almost 20 years ago, uh, I became the first Black man in history to win their annual bar scholarship. I, I looked it up, I needed money to uh, get ready for the bar exam. I didn't see where there was a limitation on being a man or a woman. I applied and uh, thank God for those amazing women. I got the scholarship and here I am today. We also have Richard T. Fields Bar Association uh, in Riverside County uh, honoring uh, Justice Richard T. Fields and all of his amazing work and contributions to the legal community. Just a few more uh, historical facts. And again, I go into excruciating detail, 70 pages in the written materials. Um, we have here a picture of Annie Virginia Stephens Cocker. She is the first black woman to pass the California bar exam. And that was in 1939. Uh, she joined the California State Office of the Legislature. Um, and throughout her career, uh, she worked to help pass bills that were focused on civil rights and making life better uh, for people of color. On the right, uh, we have a picture uh, of Robert Charles O'Hara. He was the first black man to pass the California bar exam in 1884. Um, uh, on the left is a picture of uh, Mr. O'Hara Benjamin with his family. Uh, you can see him there with his wife, two children uh, and father-in-law. Uh, it was a sad ending to Mr. O'Hara. There was a lot of uh, consternation about this black man being newly admitted to the bar uh, and he was murdered uh, doing his best trying to fight for civil rights. He became a martyr. Just a couple of more historical details before we jump into our discussion and again I encourage people to look at the written materials because there's just so much rich history here uh, that I'd love for folks to see. Uh, we have on the left Edwin L. Jefferson he was the first black man to be a judge west of the Mississippi and also the first black man who was a judge in 
California, um, moved to Los Angeles in 1921, graduated from, started as a campus janitor and then graduated from UC, USC Law School in 1931. He was appointed to the LA Municipal Court in 1941 and then Los Angeles Superior Court in 1949. Uh, later in 1961, he was appointed to the state uh, second district court of appeal and he remains the only black appellate justice in the entire state of California until his retirement. On the right, we have the amazing um, Vinyl Spencer. She was the first black woman judge uh, in California. She was also one of the longest serving judges. She served on the bench for 46 years, passed away at the age of 96. Um, I wish I could go into more history. There's so much risk history, so many amazing history makers, but we wanna get into the discussion with this incredible rock star panel. Uh, so I will now pass the microphone to my uh, amazing co-moderator, Amira, who will ask the first question to the panel. Thank you, Mr. Evans. So here's the first question. We know that the Charles Houston Bar Association is the oldest black bar association in California dating back to 1955. We also know that cable was created in 1976 with its first meeting being held on April 23, 1977. To the founders of this organization, why was this statewide organization created? What did you hope to accomplish with such organization? And I'll start with Mr. Burris. Uh, John, you're on mute. <laughs> mm. uh, it was, uh, thank you, thank you. Um, it was a pleasure listening to all of the history. I thought I knew a lot of history, but I must tell you that I felt kind of ignorant listening to all the, the information that you gather. Well, let me tell you, when, Charles, when the cable was organized in our first meeting, I had been in California for several months. I had just come from Chicago. I'd been involved with the Cook County Bar Association there and just started being involved with Charles Houston. But cable in its formation really started out, my way of thinking, was a, a, a networking activity. It was an opportunity for the Southern California lawyers and Northern California lawyers to get together. I don't know at the time of our first meeting and gathering whether there was a plan for a national or statewide organization. That kind of developed after we were there for one or two days and we started having these really good sessions about some of the contemporary issues that were going, particularly Baki and some of the prominent uh, lawyers and judges and political leaders of that period of time all came out. And so there was this high energy uh, that was being um, emanated from all of us. And, and from that, it grew to this point where we thought that this kind of energy, this kind of gathering really should have staying power and that staying power should be in an association that allows for us to have a major voice, if you will, uh, throughout the state. And at that time, there was a lot of issues around politics. Um, you know, Jerry Brown, I think, was the governor or about to become the governor. And, and there was issues around the legislative uh, agendas that was being put forth. Some of the very controversial issues that were there. Willie Brown was a major political person at the time. And it was really viewed that we should have an association that in many ways can have major impact on the judiciary, on the legislative branch, 
and to be a force even within the state bar itself. And so from that came this organization. I was one of the first treasurers. I was the first treasurer and within a couple of years I became a president. But I think that the foundation of it came about from this sense with all these African-American lawyers who were in different parts of the state that as one body speaking collectively you could have significant influence, not only in the judiciary, but the legislative, but also from a networking point of view, because then we were starting to have lawyers who had practices that were both in Southern California and Northern California. And this really presented an opportunity to have co-counsels, uh, to have local councils for people who were working in different jurisdictions. So from that point of view, it was hugely successful. And I think from my sense and, and going and being a member, that what we were projecting out is future influence future power, future ability to select and have a meaningful impact upon the judiciary. And that was, seems to me, the foundational component of what we wanted to do. And when we left there, it was high, high energy at first, at, after that first session. And there was a commitment on our part of all of us to go forward and to work collectively in a unified way uh, to prove, improve the plight and, and, the, and, the, and understand and appreciation and the stature of African-American lawyers. And that to me, was the, the true um, underpinnings of why the association was formulated and what we thought as an idea going forward. And I was happy to participate as, as a president early uh, and in leadership positions and participated in many, many uh, um, various seminars that we've had uh, down through the years. So it was, for me, it's been a very important organization. Thank you, Mr. Burr. Now to, to Mr. Harris. The <clears throat> The founding of cable was really rooted in the National Bar Association. Uh, in 1976, after the convention in Houston, Texas, two people became critical to the founding of the, bar, of the uh, cable. They were Judge Ben Travis, of uh, Oakland and Judge David Cunningham. They were obsessed with the notion that we should have a statewide organization so that we could have more influence. I point all of this out in my book, Goodbye Archidelphia, in terms of the founding of cable. And I think it's a story that would be of interest to you. As John indicated, the networking possibilities for California lawyers was, in, was enormous. And uh, it was out of those two men, Judge Ben Travis, representing the Charles Houston Bar Association, and David Cunningham representing the Langston Bar Association that we figured out a way to bring the whole state together. And uh, as a result, uh, Cable was founded. And as John pointed out, we left Los Angeles in uh, 1977, April 23rd with high energy. Uh, let me stop there. But again, I, I really do think it would be important to read uh, my book, um, Goodbye Archidelphia, which explains some of this. Thank you, Mr. Now, Mr. Holland, what are your thoughts? 
as being one of the founders, I think it's very, very important to talk about the political climate that existed at that time. We as black people have been having difficulties in all these are different arenas well before 1976 when the California Association of Black Lawyers was founded. I think what happens is that, or what happened at that time is that we had had a series of, of defeats. You know, we were, you know, we were struggling and those of us who came out of law school uh, about the time that I came out, we couldn't find jobs for the most part. And we had to go and find our own, start our own practices and try to make it on our own, which is okay. And that's kind of that kind of atmosphere that existed that made us closer and closer together as lawyers. And probably the single most person or the single person that should get the most credit is Benjamin Travis. Benjamin was the founder of the, what's well, like that? He was a person to reactivate the Charles Houston Law Club and led it to be the Charles Houston Bar Club, Bar Association, excuse me. Ben was also the catalyst that gave rise to the, to the, the Wiley Manual Law Foundation. And he is the person that got many of us involved in law because I knew Mr. Ben Travis before he was a lawyer. And he was always a person that was trying to keep you aware of the kinds of social occurrences and political occurrences that were happening at that time that we had to pay attention to. We had a series of meetings to form the California Association of Black Lawyers and a couple other people who were also instrumental like Jimmy Reese from Los Angeles, uh, Robert Robertson from Los Angeles, and I think Stan Malone also uh, from Los Angeles, these men also were responsible for the creation of the California Association of Black Lawyers. And you gotta, you gotta keep in mind too, that one of the things that, that stands out in my mind is how Don McCullum became the first president of the California Association of Black Lawyers. Don, as some of us who know him, was a very, very smart man. He was a perennial head of the Oakland branch of the NAACP. By the first convention that we had in Los Angeles, Don McCullum seemed to have been the only person to bring a, a, a curriculum vitae. He was the only one who had a resume. Nobody else had one. So we put, out, we put these resumes on everybody's door in the hotel that we're in in Los Angeles. And you know who, guess who became, became the first president? Don McCullum. So it's just a, a, an indication or, or a reminder of there were very innovative persons at that time. And Bob and, and John have told you about some of the things that are more concrete, but those are the kind of things that stand out in my mind. It was a need to get together with uh, Southern California, Northern California lawyers. And I, I, I created many, many friendships by that bonding of those two areas of California. And I'll, and I'll always be appreciative of that and the people I've made, the good people I've made, some of whom not here today, but uh, we just had some wonderful relationships that we created. So thank you for allowing me this opportunity to speak about the formation of the California Association of Black Lawyers. Thank you, Mr. Holland. Now that we heard from the three founders, I wanna turn it to Mr. Maloof as a past president. Uh, what is your take on uh, cable and its formation, what it, it went to accomplish? Yeah, well, thank you for asking me. I'm gonna read a quote directly from the bylaws of, uh, of Cable's bylaws. And it says, the primary motivating factor for the organization's formation was to change the face of the judiciary in California. 
and to influence the course of events pertinent to Black people. I think cable has made tremendous strides in the legal community. However, we must not be afraid to change the status quo. Changing the status quo doesn't mean sitting around and waiting for the governor to appoint a black attorney as a judge, but it means changing the status quo, uh, getting our lawyers to actually run for office and training our lawyers how to run for office. Um, there's another quote I'm gonna read and it's, uh, this is also from Cable's bylaws. Um, first thing I, I wanna say is we hear a lot that the number of black lawyers in California is dismal. That's what we hear all the time, it's dismal. And uh, again, if we wanna change the face, we need to actively go out there and do that. But this one quote I wanna read, and it says, um, this is actually part of Cable's objectives, this was also in the bylaws, is to seek out and eradicate the roots and causes of racism. Now with this uh, previous president that we've had, I won't mention his name, but we all know who I'm talking about. He has emboldened people to um, be overtly racist. So as far as Cable is seeking out and eradicating the roots and causes of racism, we still have a long way to go in California and a long way to go in the United States. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Malou. I think that sums it up. I'll turn it over to Mr. Evans for question number two. Thank you so much, Amira. And uh, this question is directed to our amazing Black women uh, on the panel. Black women have been and continue to be the backbone of the civil rights movement. From the inception of our country, Black women have battled both racism and gender discrimination. This discrimination against Black women has also manifested itself in the legal profession, where Black women are less likely than any other demographic to be promoted to positions of power in law firms or legal departments. All of you have defied the odds and achieved excellence in your professional careers. Based on your life experience, please tell us the greatest challenge facing Black women in the legal profession. And we can, uh, we'll start this off with uh, Venus. Thank you. Um, you know, in, in, in thinking about women and, and certainly black women and, you know, in thinking about where I think the future is, um, I, I often hark back to certainly um, black women being the foundation and the cornerstone of the voting rights movement. Uh, many people don't talk about the history of black women when it comes to voting rights in the United States certainly think about black women as the backbone and the cornerstone, um, certainly of the civil rights movement as well. Um, us going to law school, us certainly trying to break barriers and we're still having to break barriers, certainly as, as many of us on this panel are in the rooms that we sit in and the work that we do. Um, but I certainly think that representation matters. It's certainly important for us to 
continue to mentor and uplift. I've been mentored by every Black woman sitting on this panel today. I am thankful for Nidra. I am thankful for Kimmy. I am thankful for Rosinia, who all came before me. Um, the I, my ability to to join Charles Houston certainly and become a board member um, that was under Nidra. Um, she began grooming me <laughs> to to certainly take um, an an honored place in being the president of Charles Houston Bar Association. It, it certainly um, is an important part of I think um, all of our legal work and our representation um, in rooms and, and in the work that we do. And so I, 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 I continue to be amazed. I continue to sit in awe of, of black women and the work that we do. Uh, and I'm certainly just thankful for the black women that are part of my life and who are in the bar association. And since you mentioned, uh, the great Nidra Schaller, uh, Nidra, we would love your thoughts on this topic. Thank you, Terrence. So I believe that there are many challenges that continue, that we continue to face in our profession. Um, I do believe that we are undervalued. I believe that we are underestimated. I believe that we are underutilized. Um, I believe that, you know, we can sometimes be viewed as aggressive when our white counterparts are just being seen as concise and to the point. Um, we continue to be mistaken as law clerks, as court reporters, as clients. Um, I, I will say that in my years of practice, I practiced in a very casual courtroom, um, but I never once came into my courtroom casually. I took my profession, I took this responsibility very seriously, whereas my white counterparts most most days came in unprepared and came in black, you know, looking very unprofessional. But as soon as I hit that courthouse door, um, I was ready, I was prepared. I, I wanted to perform my very best. And I did that because the challenge that I see that we continue to face is that although we are competent, although we are above reproach, or although we are excellent practitioners, we are not always seen that way. We are not always valued in that way. And so um, this collective group ensures that we have a voice, ensures that we have a colleague to talk to, ensures that we have mentors to toss these ideas and concerns around with, ensures that these challenges that we have to deal with on the day-to-day -day do not wear us down, but instead lift us up. So those are the challenges that I see. Thank you so much, Nidra. Uh, Rosinia. Thank you, um, good evening. So kind of going on what Nidra said, I'm like, I don't know if we necessarily get discriminated against directly. There's always subtle in, um, discrimination within your job. You don't know why you didn't get the promotion or you're wondering why somebody has a mentor and you don't. What I think we really face when she really said is the backlash of the long held assumption that we are aggressive and we're angry women. And so I have a prime example. I was having a, I could say heated discussion with another colleague at work at one point and we were disagreeing. Um, we didn't agree on the format and where we needed to go forward. But all of a sudden he pulls out of his, as I call it, his belly wick, 
of why am I so hostile? And I'm sitting in there and I'm just like, I'm discussing my point the same way you're discussing your point. And now all of a sudden in the room, it becomes the black woman is angry and she's hostile. So I was literally, I was, I was young in my career. I was taken aback. I was just voicing my opinion, but all of a sudden I was put in this box. So his comment hit the mark. All of a sudden, I didn't want to talk anymore. I didn't want to speak my conversation. I tempered my conversation. And he basically won the discussion because I didn't want to feel like in the room, I'm hostile and I'm angry. So I didn't take it. I didn't let it frustrate me. I look at it. I took it as a learning opportunity. So I've learned, unfortunately, to have to speak a certain way at work so I can basically be heard. I must be softer and gentler to bring my point. I can no longer bring my full self to work because my counterparts will dismiss my opinion. So I've learned to be able to speak a certain way and be a certain way so I won't be perceived as this angry, hostile Black woman. But fortunately, as I say, and I'm never perceived hostile and maybe aggressive, maybe I'm a leader, I found the Bar Association which caters to African-American people. And I'm forever grateful that that is a safe space for me to be all that I can be and be the African-American leader woman that I want to be and argue my opinion and not be considered hostile, but consider some person who has value and that I can bring it to the table. Thank you so much, Rosinia. Um, Kimberly, may, may we hear from you on this topic as well? All of these wonderful ladies pretty much touched on um, all the, the challenges that we face as Black women. I think I'm the only one that worked in law firms um, out of the, the ones that I've spoken. Um, so I, I've worked, I'm now in-house, but I worked for about 20 years in uh, majority law firms, um, usually the only Black attorney, not just female, but Black attorney. Um, at least my first firm, I was the only Black attorney for the three and a half years I was there at the firm I just left. Um, I was maybe one of five, and then I was the only Black partner in the San Francisco office for many, many years. Um, starting out, I would say that was probably my biggest challenge. I'm not, um, I mean, I grew up pretty much being the only, a lot of uh, situations I was in at school, um, especially in elementary, but um, when you're first starting out as a lawyer, because you don't really learn how to be a lawyer in law school, you're, you're taught fundamentals, but you're not really taught how to be a lawyer. Um, and I was fortunate enough to both law firms I worked at, I was thrown into the fire. So um, I was doing depositions, going to court early on. I wasn't just stuck in a room doing research. Um, and so you kind of have that, you want to do it, but you can't just be good, you know, not just as a Black woman, but you know, black period, you can't just be good. You have to be exceptional, exceptional to be noticed. Um, and that's just, that's a lot of stress on you. Um, and I think uh, for me, you know, I struggled early on because, you know, just not being the only black person, you don't bring your true self as Rosinia said, or your full self to work. You got to learn to walk that fine line of, you know, you want to be assertive, but sometimes you're not because you don't want to be term the angry black woman. Um, and so that to me, even through being partner, I mean, I, of course I got more comfortable um, in my role, but it was a long road for me um, being comfortable and being able to uh, speak how I wanted to speak, be 
you know, aggressive. Sometimes you have to be aggressive um, because not only in the firms, but for me, even in the courtroom or in cases, a lot of time, most of the time I was the only black. I mean, it was rare. I mean, I'd have to keep the smile to myself when I walk in and see opposing counsel with another black person or walk into court and see the judge is black. And most of the time it's a judge I know because they're in Charles Houston or Cable. Um, we kind of do that little, hey, how you doing type thing. But um, yeah, that, that's probably the biggest challenge I, I had was just being the only in the room. Thank you so much for sharing that. And before we go on, I can see uh, Eileen, I could just see something in your eyes that you wanted to say something on this topic. I could feel it. Eileen, would you like to share your thoughts on this? Just quickly, I, you know, I started my career, I, I'm going to age myself, over 32 years ago. Um, I was 28 years old, uh, and I was head counsel for a division of Lockheed Martin. And I never saw a person that looked like me, ever, in any situation that I was in. And uh, I was giving advice to vice presidents of, you know, the research and development division of a, of a, a Fortune 50 company. And, you know, oftentimes, not only were you, were you holding on to that, don't get your temper in any close proximity to reality in a conversation, but, you know, plan to be ignored. I mean, I, I remember several times where I would say, this is our position, you know, and the next thing you know, something else would go out or something, you know, and I would have to continually assert myself. And as Black women and as Black people in general, it is really hard to assert yourself and smile. I mean, this smile, my CEO tells me all the time, I know Eileen as well, because she can carry a smile longer than anybody I know. But but you have that stereotype of the smiling, you know, buffoon of the black person that, you know, I'm going to smile. And so you have all these things going through your mind as you just are trying to get your job done. And it's surprising how I catch myself when my, my interest or my passion for something reaches my voice in a conversation and I have to tap it down. Or when I get ready to talk, and everybody suddenly looks at their iPhone to send, you know, everybody's been waiting, everybody's talked in the, in the, in the room. It's my turn to give my presentation on legal or whatever. And my CEO immediately hits his phone. And I'm thinking, I didn't even get the 2.6 seconds that everybody else got, you know? <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the thing about this, this gathering of presidents and, and, and leaders in our community is also to tell you, keep going keep trying, keep asserting yourself, continue to tap it down if you have to, continue to do whatever you need to do so that you are a successful attorney in your discipline and, and don't feel at the end of the day that you were not true to yourself. Those are really two hard things to do at the same time, but we're all here. If you ever feel like that dichotomy between who you are and who you want to be and who the lawyer is, is in your, in your uh, environment that you're working in, call one of us because we'll listen and then we'll tell you, you know, the grass is greener over the septic tank. No matter where you go, you're going to encounter this. So you could stay and fix it, or you can go and go and go and, you know, potentially hopefully find that place. But in 32 years, I haven't. 